Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. RUF is a place uh, for the convinced and unconvinced. Uh, if you're convinced of the things of Scripture or if you're really not convinced of the things of the Bible, we take doubts and questions and objections very seriously. Uh, so this is a place where you can come if you don't believe what we're saying. But what we also think is if you are convinced, we hope this is a place where your faith is challenged and nourished. And what we hope is that it's a community where we're all interacting with each other. Uh, we think everybody in this room, regardless of where you are in terms of your convictions, is in a process. And we're, none of us have arrived. And we're all in different places in our process. And you're welcome to come here wherever you are in your process. But what I would encourage you to do is process it together. Uh, don't just come here or come to some other events and interact with the ideas but actually in the context of serious conversation, but also in the context of playing together. So in this meeting and some of our small group meetings uh, and, and getting coffee with someone in here, I would encourage you not just to think about the ideas you're processing by yourself, but connect with people as you do it. Uh, we're made to work these things out inside of community. So what we'll do on Tuesday nights in RUF is we're going to open the Bible and we're going to wrestle with it. And we don't think that it is a list of rules of things you have to do to make God happy with you, to give you the things you want. Um, We don't think it's a book of fables. We think it's historical testimony to the way God has acted in the world in love for his people. And that centers on the person of Jesus, that he sits at the center of the story. If you want to know our view of Scripture, Homer Simpson summarizes it really well. He says, it's all these people are a mess except for this one guy. So that's kind of what RUF is about when we open the Bible. Um, All right, so what are we doing this quarter in RUF? What we're going to do is we're going to examine questions that Jesus asked his followers and people who don't follow. You know, usually the way that we deal with Bible and the... You get it, right? I don't even know. But was that intentional? That was awesome. Okay. Who's doing that? That was great. No, that was good. Uh, is there going to be any more of those I need to know about? Okay. Right. Um, you know, a lot of times I think we come into faith situations where we're considering ideas and we have questions. And that's fine. What does it mean? Who is God? How do I feel about this? What do I believe? And we have questions for God and he can handle that. Um, but if you think about it for a second, you can't have a relationship with someone unless the questions go both ways. If you've ever been in a situation where you've hung out with someone and you do all the asking, after a while it gets awkward and you realize, we don't have a relationship, I'm just asking you a lot of questions. And so Jesus asks a lot of questions. We actually want this to be a time where he asks us questions, and when they ask questions, it's okay if they unnerve you, usually they do. They're intended to shake us, they're intended to make us think a little bit deeper about things, uh, that's exactly what Jesus wants to do with his questions, usually. But if you're not careful, you can get really busy at Stanford and forget to ask deep questions. Uh, and some of Steve Jobs' enduring advice that he gave to Stanford students at, commitments, at commencement years ago 
as he said, question every dogma. Well, Jesus tonight actually provides a great jumping off point for applying Steve Jobs' wisdom because he asked this question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What's your soul worth? Is it possible to get everything you ever wanted to get? Is it possible to do everything you wanted to do? Is it possible to get everyone's attention or approval that you wanted to get and lose your soul in the process? And the Greek word in the text is actually psyche. It's not just soul as in disembodied spirit. It's your personhood, who you are, your identity. You're about to get really busy. Some of y'all, it's day two, and you're already really busy. And if you're not careful, the busyness of these small things and the tyranny of the urgent will dull your senses and you will forget to ask this question. Let's read what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 16. That's okay. oh, That's good. All right. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's a crazy statement because he's saying all the religious people and the pastors and theologians are going to kill him. On the third day, he'll be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. But, you're, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciple, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? We're going to stop there tonight. We'll pick up more next week. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that regardless of where we are in our spirituality and our faith and our belief in you, um, that you would not let us walk away from this question, uh, that you would force us to wrestle with it, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present, because it is hard to believe the implications of this question. And so we need you to testify to our spirit that this is true and that we can trust you. So be with us now as we consider your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you haven't met me yet, you'll quickly find out uh, I love television. And if you've ever wondered, I wonder if everybody knew that they lived during the Renaissance. Uh, what was it like to be self-aware that you were living during the Renaissance? You might not know this. This is the golden era of television, and historians hundreds of years from now will talk about the golden era of television. So that's kind of interesting, right? Are you self-aware of the fact you're living in the Renaissance? That's a great question to ask. But we're in that moment culturally. If you're like, that guy's weird, I'm right about this. But, <laughs> and the show Mad Men is one of the pinnacles of kind of television achievement. And I read a, uh, if you're not familiar with Mad Men, it's kind of an exploration of the 60s and 70s in America, of the advertising industry, gender politics, ambition, masculinity, all kinds of stuff. And uh, the, all of the characters in it are very tragic. But I read an interview recently of Vincent Carthizer. Uh, that's the actor that plays a character named Pete Campbell. Pete Campbell is a salesman. And here's what the interviewer asked him. He said, your character's man, 
is a man of ambition, but he seems to get more unhappy the more he achieves. He's achieved many of his goals. His wife had the baby. He got a bigger office. He's beating his opponent. He seems to get crabbier by the week. Do you understand why he's so unhappy? Here's what Vincent Carthizer said. Listen to this. With success comes sadness. You think, I'll reach this goal, then I'll feel a sense of completeness, of wholeness, I'll feel that I've accomplished something, and I'll see myself as a worthy man, and that doesn't really exist. He's addressing the myth that Jesus is talking to us about. Do you know that you can win at everything and still lose? Right? The myth, that's the question. The myth is this. If you accomplish everything you want for yourself in this life, you'll be full. That's the myth that we're all tempted to believe. Right? That if you win at Stanford, you win in life. But Carthizer's character, Pete, but actually I think you can argue the whole story of Mad Men is the story of men and women who gain the whole world and lose their souls. And the trauma of that realization is actually compounded precisely when you get everything you want and you realize it's not enough. One of the things, if you're a freshman, you'll find this out at some point, but all the upper class already know this. One of the things that's killing people here is that we thought Stanford was going to be enough. Article in the Daily a couple of years ago talked about mental health here. And these are some quotes from students in that article. We live in, we at Stanford live in such a paradise seeming place that we begin to believe that it's indeed a paradise. And that Stanford's, and by extension, students' baseline mental health should be perfect. That was a junior. Here's another quote from the student There's a culture of we're the best, and so everyone is so happy, and that can be toxic and alienating. Another student said, after getting some help, for mental health, said after getting help, it was so much pressure to be happy. And I finally just had to be like, I'm happy. I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. And so on. Because there was so much pressure to convince everybody I was happy. Let's, let's indulge some grandiose language for a moment, right? I googled this afternoon how many people have ever lived. Estimates between 100 and 105 billion humans have ever walked the earth. You could argue, and Stanford would love to hear that we're arguing this, right? That no collection of 18 to 25, 28, we love you grad students. 18 to 25, 28-year-olds, no collection in the history of humanity has been given more opportunity to win than y'all. Right? The people on campus today are the top 15,000 people out of the 105 billion people. No collection of people together has been given a better chance at getting everything they want out of life than y'all. Do you think it'll work? Freshmen, get lunch with an upperclassman. They would all love to hang out with you. And ask them, did it work? Because they already know what you're going to experience, which is the midterm, the social function, the people that you're dying to be accepted by, the cause that you jump on board with, the hookup you long for, the thing that in a couple of weeks is going to consume you and it's going to feel like everything. And it's going to demand all of you. 
It's going to feel like the most important thing in your life. And guess what? It's not. It's going to feel like you have to serve it with all of yourself in order to have life. And that's a lie. Psychologist David Lester is someone who studies suicidology. And he said this. Regions of higher quality of life always have higher suicide rates. And he also found that suicide has seasonal spikes. Do you know when suicide rates are the highest? In the spring. I read an article by Wright Thompson, who's the best writer on ESPN.com by far. And y'all know that. Um, He did this kind of long article about Michael Jordan turning 50. He spent several days with Jordan and his household, traveling with him and everything. And uh, here's some things right. Thompson concluded, and here's some quotes from Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, if you don't know, greatest basketball player ever. LeBron, Michael, undebatable. That's another conversation for a later time. But here's what Thompson said. His whole life has been about proving things to people around him, to strangers, to himself. And this has been successful and spectacularly unhealthy because the boy from Chapel Hill, he went to USC, the boy from Chapel Hill is gone. And it's this appetite to prove, to attack, and to dominate, and to win that killed him. Here's what Jordan said. It's consumed me so much. I'm my own worst enemy. I drove myself so much that I'm still living with those drives. I'm living with that and I don't know how to get rid of it. And I don't know if I could. It's an addiction. You asked for this special power to achieve these heights, and now you got it? Listen to what Michael Jordan says. And you want to give it back, but you can't. If I could, then I could finally breathe. Arguably the most successful athlete in the history of the world. Hates his drive for success. Wishes he could give it back. Can't breathe with it. How is that possible? How is it possible that you can win and still lose? How is it possible that your drive and need to win is exactly how you lose? Christian or not, wherever you are on the spectrum, it's important, if you do nothing else today, I would say don't spend another day until you've begun to wrestle with this question. If you've been RUF before, you've heard me say this, and I'll say this once or twice throughout the year. Never, ever, ever, Christian or not, Don't go to bed without thinking about this. Don't wake up without thinking about this. Never forget that there are rich, educated, successful people who are deeply empty. Never forget that that class of people exist. Secondly, never forget that there are poor, uneducated people who are full. Never forget that those people do exist. Always let that trouble you. Otherwise, you are a fool every day if you're not letting that trouble you. You can win the whole world and lose your soul, and your soul is much more valuable than that. Let's talk about what Jesus has to say to that for a moment. Before we get there, I want to point this out. There are some blinking lights on all of your dashboards, mine included. And it's important to pay attention to blinking lights on your dashboard. And these blinking lights are telling you that that you know this is true. And the first blinking light is FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. It's sitting there, it's blinking. Right now, you're trying to figure out, am I coming back to RUF next week? I don't really like Mad Men, and I don't know who Michael Jordan is. Right? (laughs) 
And what fear of missing out is, is this little internal voice telling you, I'm not sure this is it. Whatever situation you're doubting, thinking about withholding from, it's that little voice that says, I'm not sure this is it. I'm not sure this is it. Hold up, hold up. Don't commit. There might be something better. Now, there's a problem with FOMO, and the problem comes when it keeps you from giving yourself to anything because you want to have a little bit of everything, and that actually, if you stay there, that's a position of narcissism and fear that leaves you really, really unhappy and lonely and friends won't be able to stand you. But... Within FOMO, there is a little blinking light of wisdom, and it's that little thing that's saying, I'm not sure this is it. I'm not sure this is it. That's a helpful blinking light. There's another blinking light on the dashboard, too, that everybody has, and it's the blinking light of insincere passion. Do you feel like you're trying to convince yourself that you're passionate about something you're not really passionate about? You know what that is? Or you're searching for something to be passionate about. And when you don't find it, you like start trying to convince yourself that you're passionate about certain things. You know what that is? That is your heart telling you you are made to be captured or carried away with something. Just completely carried away with something. But because you can't find the true something, you try to convince yourself of an insincere passion. Those are blinking lights to pay attention to. FOMO is the thing that keeps telling you, not that. I don't think it's that, not that. Insincere passion is the thing that it keeps telling you, but it's supposed to be something. It's supposed to be something. You gotta find it. So what do we do about this? What are Jesus' words to this problem about winning everything and losing it all? Here's the summary of his words, and we'll talk about them. Life is not found when we win. Is found when we love. Life is not found when we win, it's found when we love. That's why there are poor, uneducated people that are happy. You don't have to have an education to love, you don't have to have money to love. That's what they have. But here's the frustrating part of that we've got to talk about what love is, because the heart of love is losing. Life is not found when we win. doesn't mean winning's bad. It just means if you ask it to give you life, you'll always be disappointed and even actually more upset about the human condition. Life isn't found when we win. It's found when we love. And love is all about losing. Jesus actually answered his question before he asked it, if you were paying attention. He said, If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross for my sake, uh, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What's he saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying the way you become full, the way you gain life is by love. We think you get it by self-seeking. Explore yourself, discover yourself, choose your goals, chase them, acquire them, craft your identity, and on the other side you're full. That's a lie. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, whoever loses his life for my sake will say it, he is saying this, you were made to love. And love is not a fuzzy sentiment. And love is not liking someone or something. And love is not agreeing with someone or something. And love is not doing something nice. What love is, in this image here, Jesus is giving us an image of what love is, is love is substituting your happiness for someone else's flourishing and delight. 
Love is when you find another worth giving up your drive for happiness for. Setting down your drive for happiness and aiming all of your resources at their joy instead. Unless you have someone or something worth dying for, you will never live. And you can win a ton, and you will never live. Here's how one theologian described it. He said there are two kinds of love. There's false love and true love, and everybody can distinguish between the two. In false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. Your love is conditional. You give it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs, and it's non-vulnerable. You hold back so you can cut your losses at any moment if you need, if necessary. But in true love, your aim is actually to spend yourself, use yourself for the happiness of the other, because your greatest joy is that person's joy. And so your affection is actually unconditional. You give it regardless whether your loved one is meeting your needs. And it's radically vulnerable. You spend everything and you hold nothing back and you give it all away. You were made to give your life away for someone. And is the only way you will find life. And as long as you think that you're made and your mission is to protect, serve, and improve your life for your own benefit, you will lose it. We've got to give it away. And you've got to give it all away. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying school, excellent, ambition, relationships, goals. I'm not saying they're bad. But the only way that they won't consume you is if they are co-opted into service of something beyond yourself. They have to be for something else other than you. Otherwise, they will devour you. If you're going to find life, you have to give it away. You have to give away all of it. When you truly love, when you found something worthy of love, here's one of the ways you'll know. You'll start wondering whether or not you're happy and you won't talk about happiness very much. Because you're actually swept up into something beyond yourself. Truly, deeply happy, soul-satisfied, alive people, they never talk about how happy they are. They are actually instead fixated on what they love, and they talk about that. They talk about their object of love. Don't ever trust anyone who talks about how happy they are. What that means... I'm probably going to offend somebody right here. All right, sorry, I've already done it several times. That probably just means they're successfully, politely narcissistic. That's what that means. I am so happy about how I'm so happy. You're so polite narcissist. That's, that's all right. It's better than other narcissists. But people who are full talk about what they love. And Jesus says he's the object worthy of love. And of course, when you love him... It's not just about Him. The fallout is that you begin to love all that He has made. And that's why the summary of His goal for your life is that you love Him and you love your neighbor. Because He loves your neighbor. You actually end up loving your neighbor because Jesus loves him so much. Or her so much. So here's our last question to close it out. How do you do that? Because that sounds impossible. It is way easier to come to Stanford and focus on your own happiness. That's what everybody does. You can be really successful doing it. Jordan killed it. You, you're entertaining this idea if you feel like that's impossible to forget myself because I love 
Jesus so much. Okay, if that feels impossible, you're in the right place. It is impossible to wake up tomorrow and not say, it's impossible for everybody in this room, to wake up tomorrow and not say, today my agenda is me getting what I want, making sure I'm socially comfortable at lunch, and tonight, whatever social setting I find myself in, making sure I advance my chances at finding someone, make sure I advance my academic and professional goals, getting my psychological and physical health in order. How do you wake up tomorrow and not be totally consumed with using all the resources of your life on you? Even our good things that we do for other people, right? Are warped with our need to feel good about ourselves. Here's the only hope we have in change. Here's the only hope we have in being full. It's if you're the recipient of that kind of love first. This theme is present in Scripture from the first page to the last. That Jesus never, ever, 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 and God never, ever, ever tells you how to change unless He has first told you how much He loves you. His love always precedes His call to transformation. His love is never withheld on the condition that you change. That means His love is unconditional. It is all of grace. You don't behave more Christian-y so that God will like you more and help you win. His love comes first and then it ignites in us a desire and ability to begin to let to go of self. We need from Him the kind of love He intends to induce in us. The way one pastor said it is we need someone who loves us who didn't do it to get anything from us. Someone who loves us radically, unconditionally, vulnerably, who just loves us for our sake. If we received that kind of love, that would so assure us of our value, it would fill us up. And we'd start to love that way too. The passage started in verse 21. The passage began with Jesus saying, He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of the religious people. He must be killed. And on the third day... Raised. Jesus began the call to us to let go of ourselves. It began by Him first saying, I give my life in love for you. I go to the cross for you. I go into the grave for you so that you'll be raised with me. If the cross, if the cross of Jesus, the cross of His love, doesn't sit at the center of yourself, at the center of your sense of what the world is about, then you may even identify as a Christian and what you'll do is you'll chase all the commands of the Christian life trying to be a better Christian because you hate how I'm not good you are at being a Christian. And you'll try to convince yourself that you're Christian enough in your behavior also while pursuing all your other dreams that you hope God kind of baptizes and promises and gives you. And you will lose your life in a flurry of both worldly and religious lists of crap that you're trying to do better. Don't do that. Or if you're not a Christian, you'll just run headlong after the things you want. And either you won't get them, and if you don't get them, then you live in guilt and anxiety that somehow you missed it or wrecked it. Or you might get to the point, the more distressing place, of getting to the mountaintop and realizing there's nothing there. But the cross is the place where Jesus says, I give my life for you. In love. It's the place where he loves you first 
in the manner of the love that He actually calls us to. So let's talk about the cross for a second. When Peter hears about it, right, in this passage, he still thinks, Jesus, life is about winning. You're talking about losing. And Jesus rebukes him because even when his best friend still doesn't get it, his best friend still thinks the way of life is winning. The world always thinks that way. And even Christian-y people get obsessed with winning Christian-y ways. Right? Be winners. Get powers. Have influence. Change the world. And it's like we forgot that the cross is at the center of everything. That the center of the universe, according to the Bible, is the giving up of power and influence. We don't need more Christian world changers. What we need is Christians being faithful and loving friends. Faithful and loving roommates. Faithful and loving neighbors. Day in and day out of mundane, busy life. Jesus is saying the way to life is the losing that love demands. And he says to Peter, because I love you, I go to Jerusalem, and I've got to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. And that word must is important, because love makes you feel like you have no choice. So why the cross, right? Why does he say, I've got to do this out of love for you? And what that means to talk about the cross, we have to talk about sin. And it's not cool to talk about sin and guilt. And avoiding conversation about sin, avoiding that conversation is really not helpful because it's avoiding the ultimate elephant in the room. We are jacked up people, all of us in this room. And the less that we acknowledge that our sin and our selfishness is jacking with us and the people around us, the more jacked up we'll be if we just try to pretend that's not true. But because our egos are so fragile and we're often trying to... What happens is we try to remove the vocabulary of sin and guilt from discourse. But the problem is when you get rid of the words, you still don't get rid of the reality. So now we just have less religious sounding words that aren't as offensive. We feel insecure. We feel self-loathing. We feel worthless. That's the feeling. Something is wrong with me. The old world word for that... uh, The old world term for that word sin and guilt. There's a lot of W's there. I'm not who I should be. Some of that's because of the way others have treated me, but also a lot of it is my fault. Most of it's my fault. Well, the, what they used to call that is they used to call it sin. Feeling it is what they used to call guilt. And when we reintroduce into our imaginary and our vocabulary, here's what happens actually. You're actually at the beginning of hope. We let that unmanageable concept of sin. I'm wrong. I'm a selfish person consumed with self-love. And that's the chief cause of misery in this world. And it's universally all of our condition. We're co-participants. It's a heavy feeling. It's a helpless feeling. But it's in that place the cross of Jesus makes sense. And we can experience love and you can be changed. Because the cross is the place where God took all his feelings about all the evils we all individually brought into his beautiful world that was intended to be amazing. And we still see that it was supposed to be amazing and it's almost amazing, but we all jacked it up. But the cross is the place where he took all his feelings about the way we messed it up and pours out all his feelings about the way we messed it up on his son Jesus so that he doesn't pour out all his feelings about the way we messed it up on us. And what forgiveness is is when the offended party suffers so that the offending party doesn't have to. 
right? When your friend breaks your iPhone and you say, don't worry about it, it costs you $80. That's the fundamental principle of forgiveness. It costs you to forgive them. You die a little so they can live. God made an amazing world and He made amazing people and we've mucked it up. And we're breaking it and we're breaking ourselves and we're breaking one another. And the cross is where justice is satisfied. The cross is His forgiving love. And to become someone who has life because you've been empowered to give yourself away in love, you have to first see and you have to experience the fact that it is exactly that kind of love that Jesus has for you. He loved you so much that He told Peter, I must go to the cross. Not to get something from you, but to give something to you. Do you want to wake up tomorrow in anxiety about what you need to do to win? If that's how you want to wake up tomorrow, in anxiety and stress about what you need to do to win, then don't do anything. You'll do that naturally. Do you want to wake up tomorrow and get back to trying to hide and deny and justify and outwork and cover up all the reasons you think you're not worthy of being loved? That's how you want to wake up tomorrow, covering over everything, denying, justifying, outworking, all the things you don't like about yourself that you know are wrong with yourself, then do nothing. You'll wake up that way naturally. On the other hand, if you want to wake up tomorrow, and I'm not talking metaphorically or anything, I'm talking about Wednesday. What time do y'all get up? Like 6.30, right? Wednesday at 6.30. And you want to try for the first time to stumble through what it looks like to love a God who loves you and to love your neighbor that he made in his image. Then wake up this way. Let these be the first words, maybe in your mouth, but definitely in your heart. I messed it up yesterday. I did the same thing. I treated my roommates and my friends and my parents and my ambitions all in reference to serving me. But you gave your life for me and you went to the cross for me. Don't Don't wake up and ask, how can I win today? That'll kill you. You'll win a lot and you'll die in the process. Wake up and instead hear, you're loved in Jesus no matter what happened yesterday and no matter what happens today. And what will happen is a little bit of the ability to truly love starts to seed itself and grow in your heart and you're going to start to feel what true life and true humanity feels like. And it is sweet. It's what you're made for. Let's pray.